Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from Dan this week. Dan writes in and says, hello. I've listened to some of your shows. I'd happily contribute if you find my corner of open source useful. This was a focused and highly technical audience. And then he gives a link to a YouTube talk um, that he had on Lumo SQL. Uh, he provides another link, lumosql.org slash source slash Lumo SQL. And he said the project has grown since the talk, but the drivers and constraints are the same. And Richard Hip's cluster of technologies are still impressive. This was to a larger and equally technical audience, but more mixed and more existential topic. And then he has another link. This is an EU, ES, an EU, US, etc. argument for creating Lumo SQL related to law and privacy and a lot of humor because the politicians have no sense of irony. Best, Dan. So well, check out these videos. I've invited you to check out these videos. We'll have them linked for you in the show notes. And yeah, Dan, you absolutely have an invitation to come on. Uh, just reach out to us and, and, and let us know what dates work for you. Our second email comes in from Roger. Roger reaches out and says, hello, Noah, on a recent episode of Ask Noah, or on a recent episode of Ask Noah, an Ask Noah show listener was looking for a way to manage a large number of SSH connections. I use the slash dot SSH slash config file to reduce complex command lines down to a simple SSH host specification. Use man SSH underscore config to display the manual page and the following URL for implementation examples. And then he links to a cybercity.biz article on creating an SSH config file for Linux. One reason for using the SSH slash config file is to use different identity files, different SSH keys, for each host I want to connect to. Best regards, Roger. So a huge thanks for uh, for writing in. Um, I love solutions that are open source. I love solutions that uh, work natively with what's already on the system, and your solution does exactly that. So hopefully that does help out our listener from a few weeks ago who was interested in, in uh, managing multiple SSH connections and trying to do that effectively. Our second email tonight comes, er, are we on number three? We're on number three. A third email comes tonight in from Alex. Alex writes in and says, hey, Noah, love the show. I'd like your advice on off-site backups. I'm looking for an off-site backup solution. I want to back up everything to a Synology NAS on my home network. But I'd like to have backup off-site in case of theft, fire, natural disaster, so on and so forth. I have about 100 gigabytes of data that will grow slowly over time. Should I back up to an off-site solution directly from one of my computers or directly from the NAS? Also, how would I go about doing either scenario based on your recommendation? Thanks, Alex. So a couple things that we need to break down here. Uh, we'll start by by talking about what you're trying to achieve with your backup. So rule of thumb is if your data isn't in three, three locations, it doesn't exist. And so I'll, I'll use my home as an example. I have my main file server, which is what I use on a day-to-day basis. Every 15 minutes, a snapshot is taken of that data set. 
The purpose of that snapshot is not to provide a backup of that data. The purpose of that snapshot is to reduce the amount of time the file server is offline while I go hunting for a backup to recover data. In the case of the snapshot, I can simply restore the snapshot, pull the file that I'm looking for, that the user's looking for, and go on with my merry day. At the end of the night, at midnight, or somewhere thereafter, every night, my file server backs up to a backup server that's also in the house. Now, that is just a plain Jane uh, Linux box, really. Um, and I can't remember if I used LVM or ZFS. But it has a, a big collection of disks, JBOD, and it just dumps all of the data using rsync every night. And so that is designed to prevent for, for something that happened during the day, but I don't catch it right away. Uh, and I might, I might not catch it until the next day. And so I've got 24 hours for that backup. And then, of course, the snapshots are continuing. So in the event that, you know, two days passes, three days pass, we still keep those snapshots for 30 days. But if the file server totally goes over or starts on fire, or my basement floods or starts on fire, there's a secondary server in the house that's close to an exit. And the whole idea there is that the data is safe there in a second location. But of course, again, not in three locations doesn't exist at all. So we have yet a third. Now, the third is kind of where I think your solution probably comes in. The reason I say that, if I was only going to have two servers and I was only going to have one backup, I certainly wouldn't store them both in the house because in the event of a fire, natural disaster, or theft, who's to say they won't steal both of the servers or both won't get caught in the fire or both won't get caught in the natural disaster? So you'd want to have an off, uh, you know, a totally off-site backup. However, there's two ways you can go about getting data there. And the way that I choose to do it is a little bit more cumbersome, um, but there's a reason for that. And the way that I do it is this. I have a small little Pelican case. Inside of the Pelican case is a disk array. And the disk array is connected to an enclosure that has an eSATA port on it. And so the backup enclosure gets connected to the backup server at the house. And once a month or twice a month, depending on how much data is being ingested, I run a third backup. And it dumps it to all of those, that external drive bay. Now, the advantage of doing it that way is a couplefold. First of all, it's that that third backup is not connected to power. So it removes, or well, it'll, it reduces the likelihood of electrical damage or getting hit by a lightning strike or those kinds of things. It reduces the likelihood that some something somebody's going to crawl in there and corrupt something and so on and so forth. It's a completely to totally cold storage copy of the data. And then, because I'm super anal retentive, once a year, that data gets published into what I just call an archive, which is basically that year's dump uh, of all of the uh, all of the data that we've accumulated from that year. Uh, and it writes that out. And, and if it's if small enough, I'll, I'll store them on try and store them on optical disks. Uh, there's there are particular Blu-ray optical discs. I've talked about them before in the show, but I'll put a link in this week's show notes as well. They're specifically designed for archiving. Um, and that is where I put critical stuff through the throughout the year that I just cannot lose no matter what. Burn two copies of those. One goes in one location, one goes into another. And that's how that's how I deal with backing up my data. And that's how I can fairly, I can rest fairly sure that there's not going to come a point in time where I'm going to go looking for a file and can't recover it from one of my, well, really four or five places, but really three main places that don't involve hunting for you know, hundreds and hundreds of disks. At client locations, we do it a slightly different way. Uh, the, the, the cold backup is great because, like I say, it does reduce a lot of the threat vector from uh, damage. The problem is 
it's a manual process. It requires me to get in my car, drive all the way over to the place where I keep my data, and pick up that case, drive it all the way back to my house, plug the thing in, run the scripts, to back up all the data, verify that it's all there, put it back in the box, and then drive it all the way back, right? Additionally, and I've thought about this, moving you know, from doing it, taking the backup server and condensing that down into a small enough unit and bringing it out to the offsite location and backing up there, uh, that might be a more practical way to do it because then there's nothing that can take me out in one location. All three backups, other than the archive disks, all reside at my house at least once a month, twice a month. Only for a few hours, but could be enough, right? So if I wanted to eliminate that entirely, then I would probably go to just moving the server back and forth. The other way to do it is the way we set it up for clients. We do it over the internet. And so we do the initial backup by taking their backup server and plugging them both in on the same network, run the backup. Now it's complete. Now we take the backup server, put it wherever we want. Sometimes it's in the data center. Sometimes it's in our office. Sometimes it's in their second office. Sometimes it's in the owner's home. Uh, and then it just runs a rsync and it does a delta every night. And so whatever has changed throughout the day, which in most office environments is just a lot of Word documents and Excel documents and pictures and a couple little files that they downloaded off the Internet, nothing major. It moves. It just moves across the Internet on larger clients where they have very large data sets or they work with things like production. Uh, we use ZFS send and receive to be able to send those uh, those resources back and forth and allow them uh, to do that because obviously when you start getting into very large files, it's not that you can't send a 100 gigabyte file across the internet. It's just that you have to plan for the next one or two days for that thing to transfer, uh, depending on the internet speed. Uh, because if you don't and you don't throttle for it and you don't plan for it and just you've essentially created your own denial of service. Um, so those are the, those are the, those are kind of the ways, Alex, that I would approach an offsite backup solution. Um, again, it kind of depends a little bit on on uh, on how much data, you know, like you say, if it's growing slowly over time and you're more comfortable just setting up a box across the Internet, have it VPN back home uh, and then, you know, once a night, just have your data sync to it. Uh, that's not a bad way to go. The other thing I would tell you is this. If you if there's any data that is so sensitive for you that you just could not afford for it to get out in the wild if it just cannot get onto the internet if it's so sensitive to you uh then i go back to my cold shelf solution plug a drive in or plug a collection of drives in and do it that way not connected to the internet and store those drives not connected to the internet that kind of thing if it's not uber critical thing it's not you know massive corporate secrets something gets leaked or something bad happens and your whole company goes over it's not, nothing like that um then you can start to look at doing things like doing it over the internet, especially uh, with OpenVPN or even WireGuard. Again, one 855 it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. If you're not going to handle the solution yourself, let's say, for example, you said, I want a cloud-based solution. I don't want to do it on my own machine. For some reason, that's what you wanted to do. There are two services I would look at. First is uh, I would look at Tarsnap, Tarsnap.com. Tarsnap is backup for the truly paranoid. Now, one of the things I really like about Tarsnap is they're brain dead simple in pricing. It is literally 25 cents per gigabyte per month, period, end of story. And the nice thing about Tarsnap is you, they don't have the keys. You have the private keys to your files. And so when you make a backup and store it on Tarsnap, yeah, you're storing it on their servers, but they can't unlock. The The code is open. And the, the code for the client is available, and they can't see your private key. That's managed by you. 
And so I would uh, I, w- I would suggest looking at that. And then the other service I would look at is Cryptomator. And you can learn more at cryptomator.org. Uh, also, Sloth3D in the chat room says, Synology backs up between your NAS and a trusted friend. I've heard a recommendation uh, by many people online, depending on your data requirements. So uh, there may be actually a built-in solution to your Synology. Now, if I'm honest with you, I don't like it as much, right? I, I far li- I far prefer something like rsync. I far prefer something like uh, ZFS send and receive because you can use it on 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 whatever platform you want to use. You can use ZFS send and receive on anything that runs OpenZFS. You can use rsync on well, basically any Linux distro. So there's there's something to be said about staying agnostic, and so your process will stay the same even if your storage server changes. Um, but if it works and it's built into the Synology, that might not be a bad way to go. Our pick of the week this week is KDE Plasma Leak Guard. So I've always said that no OS is perfect and no desktop environment is perfect. And I get a lot of flack for that sometimes. People say, well, you just prefer this or the other. It's the truth is it's you have to choose what kind of problems you want to solve. And so it's not that Plasma is a problem-free environment. It's just that the kind of problems that exist on Plasma aren't ones that, frankly, take you out. And so that's what's kept me there for so long. Sure, you can break things, but I can always recover for those things. Sometimes that means I have to drop down to a CLI. Sometimes that means I have to kill a process. Other times that means I have to restart something. But almost always I can get myself back up and I don't lose work. And that's really what I care about. And uh, I've got laughed at for saying this, but you know, there'll be a time where something like the, the, the um, launcher menu will lock up, can't launch an application. Uh, it'll come back in a few minutes if I just wait, but I got to get something done now. And so having K runner and hitting alt space and launching whatever application I need to do. And I go do my thing and Katie in the background fixes its stuff. And, uh, and then, and then we go back. And so Kapavik is, is, is being a joker, jokester in the, in the chat room, which you can join, by the way, at geeklab.ninja. He says, hey, uh, is perfect desktop? Windows? Yeah. Th- again, not that window, not that Linux is a perfect experience every time. It's just that there are different problems you're going to solve on a Windows desktop. Oftentimes they're more frustrating to solve. Oftentimes they require digging deeper and it, you don't ever come away with a real answer as to why that thing isn't working. It's just blow it away and start over. Um, so that's frustrating to me, but I don't find those kinds of frustrations in KDE. Well, a new tool that has come out called Plasma Leak Guard auto restarts KDE Plasma if it's taking an abnormal amount of memory. And one of the issues that I've noticed, and particularly when I'm doing show prep with a laptop that doesn't have very much RAM, is every once in a great while, yeah, the machine will lock up. And the last few times that that happened, I dug into it a little bit more, and I saw that there was a blue indexer that was running, and it was eating a ton of memory. I later traced that down to the fact the way that I had some of my storage set up, as terabytes of storage was coming online and going offline, it was causing blue to re-index a bunch of things. I was eating a bunch of memory. And so when you combine that with, you know, if I have a bunch of tabs open and I also have element open and I have a bunch of things going on in the background, all of a sudden memory starts getting eaten up. And so Plasma Leak Guard is an application that seeks to fix that, at least from the KDE side. When KDE starts to run away, it it automatically will restart. And so this is really fantastic. I'm going to give this a shot on my work laptop and see how it works. But uh, anything that 
automates my ability to recover and brings me back online without ha- without me having to do something, uh, even if it is working around a problem like a limited amount of RAM, that's a benefit. We get emails every single week asking about routers and firewalls and what people recommend and what should I put in my house and what how where do I learn to get started with networking and stuff like that. So our gadget of the week this week is a Raspberry Pi powered router. Now you can read more about this at opensource.com. They're doing this with OpenWRT. And if you're not familiar with OpenWRT, OpenWRT is an operating system originally written for the Linksys WRT54G routing platform, which was one of the most popular consumer routers ever created. In fact, I believe they are still selling today in large part because they have established such a good reputation. OpenWRT is an open source software that runs on top of those and turns those consumer grade routers into an open source based routing appliance. So it should surprise no one that the project uh, has since ported that device over to the Raspberry Pi. To get started, all you're going to need is a Raspberry Pi, a power cable, a computer, preferably running Linux, a micro SD card with at least 16 gigabytes of free space, and each, well, let me back up. A micro SD card with 16 gigabytes of free space, that's also sacrificial. Doesn't matter if you got, I mean, it doesn't matter if you have a 64 gig card and, and if you've got files on there, make sure to take them off. It's a sacrificial card. An Ethernet cable, an LTE modem. This guy used a Teltonica TRM240, which is a GSM uh, USB modem, and then a SIM card for mobile connectivity. So I got to stop right there and say this. So the Raspberry Pi, the way that the hardware is laid out, you only have one wired port. Now, anybody who's been working with a router for more than five minutes is, is going to say to themselves, well, if you're routing between networks, wouldn't you need two network interfaces? And you'd be correct. So there's a couple ways you can go about doing that. Uh, the first way is that you can use actually the Wi-Fi as one of the interfaces. And so you can connect your Wi-Fi to your LAN and use that at, to, 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 to feed your LAN. Um, and then you can use the wired jack for your WAN connection. Or you could reverse it and you could use your Wi-Fi connection to connect to a internet source. Of course, if you're going through another router and access point, then you're going to be double natted. So that's going to break some UPnP stuff. So be aware of that. But assuming for example, you connected an access point to a router or to a cable modem, excuse me, and we're getting a public IP address off of it, uh, you could, in theory, connect the Raspberry Pi to do it that way. Probably the best way to do it if you're wanting to get started and playing with this is using a USB to Ethernet adapter, and that will give you a second wired Ethernet jack that you can use. Now, the article which from opensource.com, which we'll have linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, is actually doing it a slightly different way. They are utilizing this Teltonica TRM240LTE modem, and that's how they're bringing their WAN connection into this OpenWRT-based uh, Raspberry Pi router. So download the OpenWRT software for Raspberry Pi, write it to a flash card, or a, excuse me, an SD card, stick it into the Raspberry Pi, turn it on. What's going to happen is the Raspberry Pi is going to boot up, it's going to boot OpenWRT, and it's by default going to have an IP address of 192.168.1.1. Click login, because there's no default username and password when it's just set up, and it'll give you a list of packages to install. Um, you're going to want to go to mobile interfaces and set up the and set up the interface. If you're going to use it as a wired connection, set it up that way. If you're going to do the Wi-Fi, set it up that way. If you're if you are going to purchase an LTE modem, set it up that way. 
And once you have that set up, you, if, if you're doing something like a USB based Ethernet adapter, or if you're using the LTE modem, um, both of those free up that Wi-Fi card to be used as something else. And so then you could potentially set that Wi-Fi up to be used as an access point. And, uh, and, and, and this, and, and that's beneficial. Uh, so, and so then you'd have one contained unit that takes a cellular internet connection and allows you to connect to it. Uh, OpenWRT supports a large number of mobile modems and you can configure the mobile, uh, the mobile interface uh, for any of them with Mode Manager, which is a universal tool to manage modems. So again, the project is the Raspberry Pi router. We'll have uh, a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknowashow.com, a uh, link provided by opensource.com and huge thanks. Uh, this is a cool project and it's a great way if you want to get started with networking and learning about firewalls and, and, and so on and so forth, this is a great way to get started and play with something that you can put together for just a few bucks. In the news this week, SIGSTORE, this is exciting. The Linux Foundation is starting an open source signing tool that will help software supply chains. So a quick recap, if you're not familiar, uh, a few months ago, we covered this on Ask Noah, we talked about uh, the SolarWinds hack and what happened with that hack. And uh, the thing that is so terrifying is that the attackers were able to get a hold of the private keys. And so the software that was being installed, malicious malicious software that was being installed on customers' computer, uh, mimicked the real software, looked like the real deal. If you went to verify that the software was actually signed by that organization, uh, it was. And, th- and that's what made that attack so insidious and how it was so unpreventable uh, when somebody actually has your signing keys, it's almost impossible to stop them uh, from 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 committing malicious acts and doing it with with your technology. And so the the Linux Foundation is out to try to make this more manageable for developers, to make it more manageable for people on the other end, because a lot of people, they don't understand how signatures work. They don't understand how signing works. They don't understand what they're where they're even supposed to look to understand if software is valid, not valid, those kinds of things. And this seeks to fix all of that. Now, the technology behind this new signing, uh, this new signing uh, um, method, I guess, uh, for for rolling out the SIG store is nothing new. It's using the X509 uh, PKI certificate to generate a short key pair. So if you're not familiar with PKI, the, the, the short and dirty version is that we assign private and public key pairs. You take the, you take the private key and you sign something. And hand that out and say, look, I can prove that it's me because only I could sign it this way. And now we know that you are who you say you are. And so from then on, when you want to prove who you are, you just sign a thing and a central infrastructure keeps track of your public key and says, yep, that guy is the only guy that could assign that. So that's definitely him or her. That's what they're doing. And they're combining that with a blockchain like way of signing software so that, uh, as they put it, when the six door public key infrastructure turns a signing a certificate when a successful open ID connection is made, it's at that point that the certificate is sent to the transparency log, which introduces a trust route tied to the user's open ID account. Once signing is complete, the keys are discarded, eliminating the need for key management rotation or revocation. And so once you've proved one time who you are and that you can sign things and we have uploaded that or, or managed that into a blockchain that anybody can reference, um, then we can discard with the rest of the with 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 the rest of the PKI stuff. So this is a really cool tool, and it's what's interesting to me is that organizations like the Linux Foundation, while we don't hear about them for the day to day 
fun stuff, right? They're not the organization that's gonna that's gonna come out with or or help and support the next release of Pipeware, for say. Um, but the, the larger big picture things that Linux needs to be focusing on, because so much of the world runs on Linux. Amazon runs on Linux and Microsoft runs on Linux and they have needs when you're running Linux at that scale or running servers at that scale. And there are problems that crop up in the open source ecosystem that frankly were just not really thought of with the scale that open source is getting to. And so that's how you wind up with things like a massive SSL flaw that everybody overlooked, even though everybody's using open SSL. You need an organization that's trying to push the needle forward and trying to push the envelope to make progress. And that's exactly what the Linux Foundation is doing here uh, with their six door uh, and the ability to streamline the uh, a developers. The ability to streamline a developers process so that they can rest assured that that their users are only getting their software. And when they sign something that means something and users can trust if it's done in this way. We can trust it because it's an open source way of doing things. We can all look over and say, yes, this is the signature that belongs there. And so at this point, this is functional. It works today. Now, they call it beta because they're still testing it. And, of course, there's a lot of functionality that probably a lot of use cases that have not been specifically tested. But the underlying technology is mature, been around for a long time. There's just a different way of applying some of the existing technology, well-established technologies that are out there. And. What is changing here is it, it lowers the barrier of entry when software manufacturers want to produce software and want users to trust it. And it lowers the barrier of IS raises the bar of trust for users and, the, and their and their software sources because now they know the code that they're executing on their machines actually came uh, from the from the uh, from the the intended software manufacturer, the first types of data that will be signed under the SIG store are generic releases of artifacts like tarballs, compiled binaries, container images, with plans in the future to add jars, manifests, and signing other formats. Currently, as I say, currently the SIG store is functional, but the project describes itself as being a under prototype development, meaning that it's not available for general use. Officials said the SIG store built a fairly a fully functional server client transparently log called Wrecker, R-E-K-O-R. And anyone can stand up their own Wrecker instance if they perform their own signing. So at the end of the day, here's what you're left with. You're left with Wrecker, which is an open source project that has an open API interface that you can, that you can, um, that you can reference. And they are going to maintain a PKI for this SIG store. So all in all, this is a really exciting announcement. And again, really happy. To see that there are organizations taking this stuff seriously and and helping move the needle forward, even on stuff that doesn't necessarily have a selling point. It's not exciting or sexy to say that, hey, uh, now we're going to be able to sign software in a different way. But I think it was much needed. System76 is in the news this week with their Thaleo Mira. Now, this is the newest addition to their desktop line. What's interesting to to the about this to me is they're targeting that professional desktop space and so system 76 fairly well known in the scientific community if you're looking for machines that are born to run linux that you have to have support from a company that uses and understands linux all day long every day uh, that's where system 76 comes into play uh, this is their newest addition and part of what fascinates me about the thaleo lineup is they're moving towards building everything in-house and this is no exception they have now hired in-house engineers that have been working to create a pro solution and they, they, they thought to themselves what if we expanded the Thaleo to support more memory 
and put more powerful GPUs. So that's what they've done. In fact, they've managed to cram two GPUs into this machine, a fourth gen AMD Ryzen CPU, PCI 4.0, NVMe storage, and up to 128 gigabytes of RAM. The Thaleo Mira is thermally engineered to prevent throttling and to allow prograde components to perform at their maximum potential. And to account for the accumulated heat generated by these components, they've taken advantage of the jet streams to cool air through the bottom of the chassis and expunge hot air through a CPU duct. Meanwhile, liquid in the copper pipes absorbs the heat from the CPU, carries it to the heat sink as a gas, where it's then cooled back into a liquid. Their, in- in- their in-house meteorologists predict sunny days and strong winds, resulting in the perfect temperate day for your system. Um Aside from a, a, a really cute uh, marketing uh, strategy that went around this thing, uh, this is a really impressive machine. What the, I think the, the thing that is most impressive to me, though, is that this is built inside the United States. Quote, Thalia Mira was born from a single sheet of aluminum that's been cut, bent, powder-coated, dipped in the soothing acid, all at our manufacturing facility in Denver. The chassis is then etched with an elegant design and topped off with a veneer of real wood, adding character to your office. Handcrafted computers in-house means better support for you. Our team of real humans is here to ensure that you enjoy the best product experience possible. And I don't, I couldn't say it any better, so I'll just read it verbatim. They are hand-building computers here inside of the United States by Americans and then selling them across the United States, well, anywhere. I'm sure they ship them anywhere, but they're built right here. And so you can go meet the people that are building them. You can go talk to the engineer, and when they get a trouble ticket that says, hey, these five desktops are, or these five models or these three models are having this particular problem, we have to fix that. They have an engineer that can go back and say, well, how can we cool this better or cool this differently? And this is not... I mean, we're well into the iterations of Thaleo now. This has been a few years that they've been working on this product lineup, and it just keeps getting better and better. And so when I when I look at them uh, approaching the professional desktop market, it opens up a lot of possibilities, I think, for System76, because now you have people like me who run not just a business on Linux, because we, a lot of us are laptop-based, but you know, here in the studio, right? I need a certain amount of machines, and they I have to be able to rely on them. Of course, all those machines run Linux. So something like this, a very a, a very a very well thought out, very well engineered, very powerful machine that's specifically designed uh, to run Linux and run cool and and efficiently on Linux. That's hard to beat. Now you imagine when you start getting into universities, when you start getting into laboratories, and these places need to run high scientific calculations, and so they look at it, and the system requirements are that they have to have some version of Linux. Well, guess what? System 76 is there, and they're there either with Pop! OS, which is their custom-tailored operating system based off of Ubuntu, specifically designed for geeks by geeks, or they'll just load plain Jane Ubuntu on there for you if you want to go with the upstream current. Whatever you want, they'll do it. And of course, uh, because they design all of those machines primarily to run Linux, chances are you're going to be able to load whatever operating system you want. But again, all built inside of the United States, all built by real humans, all built by people that work for System76. So you have one company, one entity, one team, one mission, one place to get your problem solved. One place, the feedback for what doesn't go right goes into the same place for the things that do go right, goes into the same place for where they're building it. It just seems like a recipe. It just seems like a recipe for success. So congratulations, System76, on your Thaleo Mira. We're super excited for you. It looks like a great desktop.
The government of India is planning to introduce legislation banning cryptocurrency. This comes to us from Reuters. The law would impose fines on anyone who trades, mines, or even holds cryptocurrency. The government has a comfortable majority in parliament, giving the proposal a good shot at becoming law. This would make India one of the most cryptocurrency hostile jurisdictions in the world. So to put this into perspective uh, for you a little bit, China imposed a number of restrictions on trading and mining cryptocurrency, but they haven't flat out banned owning of cryptocurrency. Governments aren't sure how to respond to this, right? Because when it first started, they didn't want to lend any legitimacy to cryptocurrency at all. If it was something you're doing, it's just that online thing that you're doing. And it's really no different than uh, than Second Life, uh, you know, whatever the Lindens or whatever the, the, the thing was, right? It, it just it's a pretend currency. It doesn't mean anything. And so... That set the precedent, right? Once that, once they took that stance, now all of a sudden they kind of blocked themselves from being able to do any real serious legislation or really being able to respond to this currency, which is what it is, uh, as it's continued to evolve. But India is taking a, a, a drastic measure. And of course, this comes because Bitcoin is now surpassing $60,000. Um, it's, it's just gone insane. And, and so part of that is, I think that there is a lot of concern over the stability of other currencies. And so people are buying in. Uh, I'll, I'll remind every time I talk about cryptocurrency, I feel the need to say this. I'll say it again. You shouldn't invest in cryptocurrency. It's not a good investment. It doesn't have a great track record of, of a, of a history of returns. It's very volatile. If you want to play with it because it's a fun technology to experience and play with, by all means do so. I sure do. But, uh, it's just, it's not a good investment. And so India is taking that, I guess, I would say one step too far. As Bitcoin's price rose above $60,000 for the first time, uh, over the double weekend, there are, I, India is concerned that their citizens are going to make some bad cryptocurrency bets. They're concerned that people are going to look over and be like, Hey, a bunch of money over there. If we just invest money, we're going to make a lot. And then they're going to lose all of their money, or at least that's the official reason. It stands to reason that a country would be very concerned that their wealth would be – that an individual's wealth could be tied up outside of the, the control of any particular government or any particular collection of governments, which I think is what is, is so terrifying. Now, I'm not sure if Bitcoin is going to be the thing that wins. I kind of suspect that it won't um, because it has so much adoption so fast and people are so overboard. Like when it gets to 60 grand, the, the transaction fees are just so high that it just becomes difficult to use practically unless you're dealing with fractions and fractions and fractions and fractions and fractions. And there is a limit to how far you can subdivide. So I, I'm not sure if it'll be Bitcoin, but stuff like this, when I see an entire government say, you know what, we're just going to ban cryptocurrency and go back to, to, uh, to, to regular currency that we control that tells me that the open source community and the technology community is doing something right because it's making the wrong kind of people very nervous. KDE Alisa grows up. Alisa is now a full mobile interface, making it a first class citizen on Plasma Mobile and Android. If you're not familiar with Alisa, it is a music player, specifically a music player written for KDE. Now, a ton of the code is shared, and thanks to KDE's Kirigami user interface toolkit, uh, we now have this tool or this music player available on all forms of Plasma to include Plasma Mobile. They've also enhanced Elisa's ability to play AAC file, so that becomes an option. Now, people write into the show all the time, and I've even had a few clients who, who, have, who have either asked us during consultations or called or written in or whatever, and they say, 
when when can we move over to some sort of open source platform, some sort of open source mobile platform? And and this is just my opinion. There is no mobile operating system today that is ready to take on Android and iOS as a daily driver. Period. End of story. Um, it, again, my opinion. There, they all come with shortcomings. A lot of them get a lot of them get a lot of it right, but there's always a few shortcomings. And I remember one of the first times I sat down in a car with somebody who was using the. Um, before it was Ubi ports, back when it was the Ubuntu phone, and uh, was he said, "Why are you using my daily daily driver?" So that's cool. We got into a car. It said, "How do we get to this place?" And oh, I don't know. I don't have navigation on my phone. Yeah, that's just one step too far for me. Like, I, I get it. It's exciting that these these things are available on open source, and I would love to use them. But when there's fundamental tools that have existed, and they are just a general expectation of anybody that picks up a smartphone. I just don't think we're we're competing in the same category, but we are steadily getting there. And I want to make a comparison to you. Sailfish is the closest I've seen uh, for competing with iOS and, and, and Android in a day-to-day environment. And the reason for that is because the UI is so much better than iOS or Android. It's so much smoother and so much more polished and so much more thought out that it makes the other two look like a joke. And someday... That's going to get swapped, I think, with a totally false solution. Because the reality is part of what makes self, the UI and Sailfish so good is that it's a proprietary UI and it's been in development for years and they just pulled it into Sailfish when Sailfish became a thing. It was something else before that. I can't remember the name. Uh, every time I reload KD Plasma Mobile, uh, I get happier and happier with the, with the way that the development is going and the performance and and satisfaction I get out of using the thing. And KDA Plasma, if if I was going to replace all of my phones with something today that was totally false, it would undoubtedly be KDE Plasma Mobile. And that is the front runner. And so here's the way I here's the way I want to present this to you. I'm going to pose a hypothetical. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, that you walk into a big box store and you're looking around in the glass display case and you're trying to find something to blow 150 bucks on. And there in the glass display case, you see one of the nicest music players you've ever seen, one, like an old school MP3 player, except this one has a five inch touch screen. It connects to Wi-Fi, has Bluetooth available. And if that were available at your local big box store and you could you could load side stream, you could sideload streaming apps on it if you wanted to. But it's a hundred and fifty dollar MP3 player. That's what it is. You buy it, you open it up, you put your music on it, you play it and maybe play some music and play me play some videos on it. How many of you would buy that thing? How many of you would buy that Linux based Fost underneath music player? Let me ask you a different question. How many of you would go buy a mobile encryption pad? If that was a thing, you walk in in the glass, glass display case, the big box door, it says mobile encryption pad, communicate securely, journal securely, note take securely, take pictures, documents, whatever you own your data, whatever your day calls for. This is the encrypted device that you control the software, you control where the data goes. How many of you would buy that device for 150 bucks? Because let me tell you something. At the same time that I'm listening to people like myself saying that, hey, you know, we're just not there yet with mobile and with mobile operating systems trying to compete with mainstream ones. I then go back into the quote unquote real world and pick up a Zebra device. And there's a lot of them out there that haven't been updated. And I, and, and they're running Android Jelly Bean, right? They got 4.2 on it. And that's the PDA that these stores are using or these hospitals are using or whatever is using uh, to facilitate their business. The experience on my Pine phone today is better than those zebras that are running those that outdated version of Android. And, and not that that's zebra's fault, right? I'm sure they make an updated version. Uh, these companies just don't do that. They pick up the smart thing, whatever it is they're using, and then they just use it over and over and over and over and over again. 
And when I look at the experience that you have and how fast we're able to iterate on something like the Pine Phone, again, the experience of that is better today than the proprietary solution of four or five years ago. So I can only imagine where the experience on Pine Phone is going to be four or five years from today. Now, this article, which I'll have linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, has a bunch of bug fixes for Kate. Uh, the text view, the the uh, the text editor console, the terminal app, Gwen view, the image viewer, spectacle, the screenshot utility. There's been a ton of things that have come down uh, in Plasma, and all of them are exciting. You should check all of them out. The thing that sticks out to me, though, is we continue to march down this path very slowly but very steadily. That we they, there's there comes a music player. It's not just available for Linux anymore. Now it's available for Linux and it's available for Plasma Mobile. By the way, because it's easy to do so, it's also available on Android. And that kind of triple bang approach where where somebody focuses on just a music player, but it's a really good music player. And then that becomes available. And now you could go get a device and theoretically uh, use that as a dedicated music box. I get to a point where I say that's where I can start to see where that auxiliary device would come in and where that could be beneficial, where somebody would want to do that and where that would be helpful to someone. Um, and so I, I don't know what your specific use case is, right? You're a, you're a, you're a system administrator. And so then it's, what if I could give you a mobile, uh, a mobile terminal device that has, you know, you, it works with your YubiKey, it works with SSH, it works with whatever program that you're used to setting up and you can pair it with this Bluetooth keyboard or Bluetooth mouse or USB keyboard and mouse or plug it into a type C dock, whatever your dream scenario is for using this auxiliary device, that experience basically exists today. It's not perfected today. We're almost there, but that experience exists today. And so that's the kind of stuff I get. I just look at it and I'm like, I'm super excited about it particularly in light of our next story. And this is from ARS Technica. The company Sky Global has been dealt a blow. A federal grand jury today returned an indictment against the chief executive officer and associate of the Kennedy of the, the Canada-based firm Sky Global on charges that they knowingly and intentionally participated in a criminal enterprise that facilitated the transitional importation, distribution, and narcotics through the sale and service of encrypted communication devices. So condense that all down. The TLDR is that the CEO of a company got arrested because he made devices that allowed drug cartels to move drugs illegally. John Francis, uh, EAP Sky Global's chief executive officer, and Thomas Herdman, a former high-level distributor of Sky Global devices, are charged with conspiracy to violate the Federal Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, also known as RICO. The warrants were issued for their arrest today. The indictment alleges that Sky Global installs sophisticated encryption software on iPhone, Google Pixel, BlackBerry, and Nokia handsets. Sky Global device users communicate with each other in a closed network, and Sky Global routes these communications through encrypted servers located in Canada and France. There are at least 70,000 Sky Global devices in use worldwide, including the United States. This indictment alleges that for more than a decade, Sky Global has generated hundreds of millions of dollars in profit by facilitating the criminal activity of transitional criminal organizations and protecting these organizations from law enforcement. So I'm going to stop right here and say that anybody who intentionally tries to assist somebody in uh, in hurting somebody else or harming someone else or breaking the law, uh, that's wrong, and you shouldn't do that. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, if you go into business to make a device 
because you want people to follow a legal process if and when they want to tap somebody else's communication, that shouldn't be illegal. And nobody should be persecuted from that. Now, I dug into Sky Global a little bit deeper, and it does appear that this guy kind of knew what was happening. Oh, there's no conclusive evidence of it. But it's based on the way that they wrote their marketing material and, and, and some of the other statements that came up from the from the federal investigators, there is strong information to suggest that they were probably a little bit more aware that people were doing bad things with their product and they shouldn't get a lot of slack for that. But I, 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 if you back it up to just basic principles, right? I run LinuxDelta.com and I invite you to sign up for an account and have encrypted communication. Now don't do anything illegal with it. Please don't hurt anyone, please. But if you want to have a private conversation with one person and another, Element is a perfectly suited way to encrypt communication and send communication from one person to the other. And if you want to use Element for free and you don't have Element, then you can go sign up at LinuxDelta.com. That should not put me, that should not make me responsible for anything that you do just because I said I value privacy and I want to provide that tool. In fact, that's entirely what Section 230 is about and why I get so upset every time this comes through Congress and somebody wants to repeal it. If if you Facebook isn't responsible for the messages that people send through Facebook, Twitter isn't responsible for the messages that people send through Twitter. I shouldn't be responsible for the things that people send through Linux Delta and Sky Global shouldn't be responsible for the information that people send through their encrypted chat app. If you make a business around selling encrypted devices and private communication, certainly someone around the world is going to abuse that product or service. Right. And. Those kind of services and those kind of products, I hope, become more prevalent, not less prevalent. And I hope they become more prevalent, not because I want to see criminal enterprise succeed, but because I want to see privacy succeed. So they are they're 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 going to move forward with this prosecution prosecution. I think they have an uphill battle. And I say that because they have to prove that EAP knowingly allowed drug trading and they were and, and that they weren't protected under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And the reality is that illegal activities occur on all sorts of apps, right? Section 230 provides liability protection. Like today, Section 230 provides protection for, for against liability of those companies. And so that applies to Twitter. That applies to Facebook. The chances that you, uh, an attorney couldn't make the case in, in court that that should also apply to Sky Global uh, will depend almost entirely on what evidence that they have to suggest that they knew that this was happening. But I I strongly suspect, having gone through the marketing materials myself, like I say, there's some things that, that are a little wishy-washy. Uh, but for the most part, they had a don't ask, don't tell. We just sell encrypted communication devices. We don't care what you do with them. And that is the right approach for a company who is valuing privacy because you don't make those kinds of decisions and you don't ask those kinds of questions because it should be assumed that everybody is innocent until they've until they've proven that they can't be trusted. In which case, it's entirely appropriate to 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 bury those people, to take take away their services. Once they've started to abuse the privilege uh, of using your service and you don't want them as a customer anymore, uh, then take it away. But if Sky Global is doing their job right and they don't have access to that encrypted communication, how the heck would they know what their clients were using it for? So we'll continue to watch that lawsuit as it rolls on. Another lawsuit, this coming back into the show, we covered this when it first broke. This comes to us from Bloomberg. 
Google is facing a suit over snooping on incognito browsing. Google failed to kill a lawsuit that alleged that it secretly scoops up troves of Internet data even when users browse in incognito mode to keep their search activity private. A federal judge ruled on Friday that denied the Alphabet Incorporated initial request to throw out the case. Quote, the court concludes that Google did not notify the users that Google engages in the alleged data collection while the user is in private browsing mode. U.S. District Judge Lucy Kahn said in San Jose, California, she wrote in her ruling, if you were, uh, okay, so let me back up for a minute. If you were looking for validation that Google hasn't become serious about privacy, because you'll remember it was last week, the week before they said, oh, we're not going to use third-party cookies anymore, so we're not going to track users because we care about privacy now. If you were looking for validation that Google hasn't become as serious as we thought they were about privacy and that they're just rolling out dog and pony show, then this story does a remarkably good job of looking like validation that Google isn't really taking your privacy seriously. $5 billion, though, is enough to catch Google's attention. And this is something that Google is going to have to address sooner rather than later because they are getting a bad reputation. They're getting a bad reputation in a way that they're not going to be able to undo the knot. People are starting to wake up to privacy. People partly wake up to privacy because we live in a society now that gets bent out of shape over whatever thing we decide to get bent out of shape for this week. And but lately, that thing is privacy. And so Apple is taking a hard stance on it. Uh, Facebook is, of course, fighting the hard stance that people are taking on it because because Facebook. Um, but Google has to pick what corner they're going to fight in. And, you know, when stuff like this comes out, I, it shocks me to a certain extent that, that that Google's answer isn't sorry about that. We'll not do that anymore. Here's your fi- here's whatever the payout is, and we won't do that anymore. We're sorry for doing that in the first place and make this thing go away. But they're not saying that they're going to fight it. In fact, they're actively saying that they give you a warning when you go into Chrome and you launch an incognito mode, and it tells you now you can drive privately with other people who use this device won't see your activity. However, and then they say. The Chrome won't. It says Chrome won't save the following information, and then of course it lists all the things that's not going to be saved locally. But then it says your activity still might be visible to websites you visit, your employer or school, or your internet service provider. Basically, me and the 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 thing that's hidden in there that I think is 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 sketchy is websites you visit, your employer or school, or your internet service provider. The reason that they include those kinds of exceptions is because they invented the technology. That scrapes and understands and identifies your browser and ads and 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 uh, whatever Google's um, marketing thing is. I can't think of AdSense. It, it it tracks all of that. And so, no matter what mode you turn on, or no matter what you try to do, Google can figure out who you are and what you're doing and what your browsing habits are, and they can extract a certain amount of metadata off of that, and they can still sell it. And so, what a judge is saying is, hey. Google, when you set up a mode in your browser that says this is private and people can't get to it, that means that you have to actually respect that and you can't, you, you, you still can't turn it. You still can't, you know, you still can't look at that stuff. You still can't collect that data. And so the, the, the charge against Google or, or the clash action lawsuit against Google is saying that they're violating federal wiretapping laws, which even if I'm not sure what the, the end result of this case is going to be, I'm happy to see that that's the road that we are starting to approach when a company collects quote unquote metadata and, and, and takes that information without a user's permission. I'm not saying that Google shouldn't fund their service. Well, I don't think Google should fund their services based off of violating people's privacy, but if they're going to, 
base their services or fund their services based off of violating other people's privacy, then the way to do that is to be upfront and honest with your users that this is what you're doing. I think it's highly deceptive of Google to have an incognito mode to say that this prevents, you know, a, a record and a history and stuff on your computer and then just skim over it like the website might know who you are if you log into your bank. Your school might know who you are if you log into them. Yes, those are one or two very obvious examples, but there are tons of not so obvious examples like I visit some random third party site or some blog and that blog uses AdSense and then Google's tracking me there. That's deceptive. I don't like doing business with deceptive companies because deceptive companies can't be trusted because they lie and people who lie can't be trusted. That's how that works. Trust is hard to earn. And trust is really hard to earn when you're a multinational corporation. Trust is even harder to earn when you're a multinational corporation. You have a bad history of treating people's privacy well. And now all of a sudden, the the world's most popular browser, a feature inside of it specifically designed to give you a little extra peace of mind and a little extra privacy wasn't doing what it said it was doing thanks to Google. So we'll continue to watch the story. We'll continue to watch it unfold. I have a feeling uh, that this is going to be an interesting precedent and nothing else. It's going to get a lot of attention uh, stirred up for a little bit around privacy blogs.gnome.org. This comes from Christian Schaller. The big ticket item. Uh, this is about Fedora workstation 34. So I should set this up a little bit. I am looking to replace all of the machines in the studio. I'm looking to do kind of an overhaul and we bought new machines and I'm still looking on what operating system to load onto them. Looked at a couple different distros and the one that I'm circling around right now is Fedora workstation. And, uh, and, and so this is a timely update on what Fedora workstation 34 is going to look like quote, the big ticket item we wanted to close off was Wayland because while Wayland has been in production ready for most of, most of us for a while, there are still some use cases that it didn't cover as well as XORG. The biggest of this, of course, was the lack of accelerated XWALEN support in the binary NVIDIA driver. Fixing that issue, of course, wasn't something that we could do ourselves, and so we've been working diligently with our friends at NVIDIA to help ensure that everything was in place for them to be able to enable that support in their driver. So I've been very happy to see that public reports confirming that NVIDIA will have accelerated 3D in the summer well, it accelerated 3D in the summer release of their driver. The other X Wayland area that we put a lot of effort into is the work undertaken by Jonas Adal to get headless display support working with Wayland. This is a critical feature for people who, for instance, work on a desktop instance, but their servers are in the cloud or who want a desktop that they can access through things like VNC or RDP for system, admi- for system administrative related tasks. Uh, and so they lay out exactly how they're going to do this and then round out talking a little bit about uh, Pipewire and how they're hoping to get Pipewire uh, fleshed out into Fedora 34. Pipewire, as most of you know, is the engine uh, used to deal with handling video streams in a secure and shapeable way in Fedora Workstation. And so when you interact with webcams, when you do screencasting, when you make multiple screenshots, it's routed and handled by Pipewire. But in Fedora Workstation 34, they're aiming to also switch using Pipewire for audio, which will replace both Pulse Audio and Jack. They believe that Pipewire will be able to usher in a better Bluetooth support in Fedora than they had even with uh, the great support that they had for audio codecs like LDAC. And then finally, Red Hat is getting into the automotive space. Now, they didn't share a lot of details, but said that one thing they can say is that Pipewire will be a core part of that, and thus they will soon be looking 
to hire more engineers to work on Pipewire. So if that's something of interest to you, then you want to get in contact with them as they do their job postings. So we'll have a link for you, all of that in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Couple of announcements. Southeast Linux Fest. This year will be virtual. As it turns out, the governor has not lifted the uh, restriction of gatherings uh, for more than 25 people in the state of North Carolina. And so, of course, that would put a major bummer on the hallway track. We can't have that, but self will not be canceled. It will be virtual. It will be hosted again by yours truly. You can learn more by going to southeastlinuxfest.org. If you're interested in volunteering, we are taking, uh, we need an email with your name, best contact information, and a skill set that you would want to volunteer. You can send those emails to volunteers at minddripmedia.com. That's volunteers with an S at minddripmedia.com. The conference will take place the weekend of June 10th through the 12th. That date may change, but 99% sure it's locked in. It will be virtual. You'll find it here. We'll continue to update as the month rolls on. This is the end of this episode. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Record it live. Asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.